navy blue Victoria. And Samuzzi's his feet and goes again through mid-wicket. That's an even better shot from the Victorian captain. Swept away very nicely by Nicole Bottom for four. Oh, he's re-given! That is 50. The man from Northcote. And welcome to another edition of the Vic State Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam White. We've got a very special guest who bleeds navy blue. He's going to be our guest this week. We're not going to really talk too much about the Sheffield Shield or even the Marsh Cup, to be honest, because there's not really much to talk about overly positively. So we'll just let it go and uh, worry about the fact they're playing at the MCG, the Vicks, next week. The girls, it's all about the WBBL. We're getting towards the business end of the tournament and we'll have more on that next week. But let's get straight into our guest because I said before, he bleeds navy blue. His name is Mick Lewis and he joins us. G'day, Mick. How are you? Wally, how are you, mate? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. Do you get, uh, I don't know, itchy feet, uh, itchy hands, whatever is coming back here because you've been part of the furniture for such a, a long period of time and it's only just recently ended the relationship with Victoria. Yeah, I suppose when I first came back in, I got asked if it felt weird for me and um, it actually didn't. Uh, I suppose because I've got such good relationships with a lot of people that work here, not only players but staff, but coming back here, was it, it wasn't different. Um, it was actually nice to come back and just, you know, see a few familiar faces. Obviously been in the UK for the last eight, nine months where it is. Um, so, yeah, it was nice to come back and see familiar faces. What was it like, that experience over in the UK? Because obviously bowling coach of Victoria for such a long period of time to make that that move, that big jump to go and sort of further your coaching. What, what's it been like? Yeah, I loved it, mate. Um, for me, I think it was just changes because of holiday. Um, obviously, I'd been doing Victoria for nine years, I think it was. Um, obviously, had a little bit of success in that time as a side. Um, I think the time was just right for me just to explore other options. Um, obviously, you know, two years ago, I missed out on an international job, England job. Uh, just came second to that and then... Sort of started me to rethink my career where I wanted to go and I think a move away from Australia, sometimes to get further in Australia you have to go overseas. So I um, had a good conversation with obviously Andrew McDonald and David Saker and got their thoughts and obviously Chris Rogers at the time and Sean Graff and um, they all thought it was a good move for me so decided to pack up my house up and put it in storage and move over there. So what's it like being a bowling coach in English conditions compared to Australian conditions? We know the difference with the ball and and the pitches are very different. But are the philosophies the same or are they different? Um, yeah, look, I went in there with no preconceived ideas about any players. Um, when I arrived in Abu Dhabi on the 4th of March um, for the first two weeks, I, to be honest, I didn't do any coaching. I just needed to get to know the players first and what made them tick. And um, that was the main thing for me to establish relationships with the players. And I, I think that their, their previous bowling coach um, – they didn't really trust him or anything like that. They didn't get along with him. So for me, it was important to establish relationships, get their trust first before I could actually start talking about, you know, skill-specific stuff. So uh, I'm a people person. Um, so for the first two weeks for me, it was just getting to know them. And then you know, gradually in the second week, they started to come to me, ask me a few questions, um, do a few drills and stuff like that. So that was a win for me. Um, it wasn't me sort of pushing my philosophies and ideas when I hadn't seen them play or, or bowling load, I just need to get to know them first. And, you know, once you get to know players, they want to know information. So they came to me eventually in the end. So it worked out well. And, look, I mean, I've got a pretty talented group over there of young bowlers. So I'm actually quite excited to see what the future holds for them. So take us through, we want to talk about, obviously, your career for Victoria. But as a bowling coach, the, the role of a bowling coach, because 
I think you've become synonymous as being one of the, the best bowling coaches in the world. What What is that role, particularly with professional cricketers that have kind of got a pretty strong skill set to start with, what, the role that you play? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, for me, as you said, they've got a skill set, so they're, they're good enough to be that level. And for me, it's just about conversations and letting them know that they don't know everything and it's okay to make mistakes. Um, I think a lot of the bowlers are afraid to get out of their comfort zone a lot because they don't want to make mistakes because they get criticised for it. Um, but my sort of style is I want them to make mistakes. So I encourage them to make mistakes. Um, and when they do, it's important they recognise what they've done wrong. Um, it's rather than me, you know, smashing them saying, you've done this wrong, this wrong. It's And I just say, I said, look, we all make mistakes, we're human. But, you know, as long as you learn from it, and that's just about a conversation, what have you learned from it? Um, and I, I find that's the best way for them to actually improve as players. Uh, one of my strengths, I was from a tactical point of view, just going down to players and, like, you know, because I see the game differently off field. And you know, I might be during a game or something, it might be just a little conversation, listen to what I'm seeing, um, getting to know how they go about things, you know, their body language. So it, it's pretty, it's, it's, look, it's not rocket science. But you got to have the ability to listen as a coach, and you got to have the ability to say, "Look, I don't know everything," which I don't. And if there's something I don't know, I'm not afraid to sort of seek out someone who knows the answers. So, um, look, obviously, I've got a good relationship with David Saker and Andrew McDonald, and a lot of times, if I don't know the answer, I'll give them a shout and say, "What are your thoughts?" Mm. Has it changed in 20 years bowling because of T20 cricket? And it's almost this. Not not obsession with T Twenty cricket or, or short form cricket, but have lengths changed or have bowlers more preoccupied with with dot balls as opposed to taking wickets? If you think of how cricket's changed in the last couple of decades, yeah, I, I think over the last three or four years, especially, bowls have gone away from being an attacking bowler and trying to take wickets. Yep, um, I think they're more concerned about not going for runs. Um, where the flip side is, if you're actually taking wickets, you're not going to get hit for runs. Um, I look at the way, especially bowlers, I look at the way England bowled this year, especially in the death overs, and they bowled a lot of straight Yorkers and wide Yorkers. Um, Sam Curran was a great exponent of the mm. straight Yorker. Um, where I think a lot of players are afraid to bowl that Yorker now because they don't want to get hit. Um, where I think this year at Essex has sort of encouraged the bowlers to go back to what they're comfortable doing and what they know they can do. Um, and that, and that's just knowing their skill set as well. If they're not, if they can't nail a straight Yorker, but they can nail a wild Yorker, well, play to your strengths. Mm. Um, well, I think the game has changed a lot over twenty years, but I see where it used to be a lot more bowler dominant. It's really battered dominant now. Dominant now, and I think bowlers have just got to have the courage to back their skill set mm. and, and just go out and believe that they can do it. Yeah, it's interesting. We might get back to that a little bit later on because you're talking about Yorkers. It was one of the best things that you you did. It was one of your, your trademarks. But you, know, you you played cricket Victoria first time at 25, um, but you didn't have the normal pathway coming through. Tell us a bit about you growing up, where you played your cricket and when you kind of realised I might be okay at this. Yeah, I, I played predominantly my cricket at Roseanne Cricket Club in the old HDCA. And uh, I pretty much just played there because all my mates were playing there. And um, – I love my AFL. I was playing, you know, A-grade Diamond Valley football uh, for Greensboro and the ones there. 
And then cricket was sort of like a sideshow for me in the win- in the summer, just to sort of you know keep me fit and have a bit of fun with the boys. And then um, I had a bit of pace, obviously, and everyone kept telling me to go down to district cricket, district cricket back. It was district cricket back then, but I really had no interest in district cricket. I just wanted to play footy and play in the summer with my mates and go away and a few pots on a Friday night, <laughs> which we used to do after work. Um, it wasn't uh, until a guy called Adam Smith who used to play for Northcote, yeah. played Aussie 19s and came to work with me. I was the warehouse manager at Calvin Klein. And he came to work with me as a, as a casual and uh, Northcote one year were playing – I was playing at Montmorency this year and Northcote had one game to go and they were short and we'd finish for the season. He asked me, he said, do you want to fill in for us? I said, yeah, right, I said, may as well have a go. And So I put on spikes, which were two sizes too small for me and then played for Northcote um, – at Fitzroy's Grounds, Grams Shrams Reserve in the twos, and uh, ended up taking five for uh, 48 off about 34 overs. And then um, Northcote asked me next year to come down to pre season. And I decided at that stage, I said, Well, I might as well have a crack and see how far I can go. Um, so, how old were you at this point? I reckon I was 23. Yep. 23? 23, yeah. I was 23. So, I went down to 23, and I remember telling Dad that. I wasn't going to play footy that year for Greens or I was going to do a pre-season cricket. And he said, what's that involved, sitting in the pub drinking pots? I said, I hope so. <laughs> um, so I went down to pre-season in Northcote and um, started in the ones there and, yeah, the rest is sort of history and then had a good year for Northcote and got invited to train for Victoria next year and then uh, impressed training-wise, um, played a trial game at the Albert uh, where I took a couple of wickets and then played the first one-day game here in North Sydney. So playing suburban cricket, two-piece ball, synthetic, um, bowling at your pace, were you always the feared fast bowler in, in local cricket in the in the Diamond Valley or, or did the pace come later as you started to get a bit more serious about it? No, the pace was always there from about 17, 18. Um, and, look, there was, there was a couple of guys probably quicker than me going around in the old HCCA. Um, but they were quick for like five, six overs and then, you know, they'd be gone. But my strength was first ball to last ball was the same pace. Um, obviously, I don't know, pr- probably because of fitness, whatever it was, but I mean, one day I, I bowled, I think, 37 overs in a row. Right. Out of 80 over game. And, you know, everyone said my pace from first ball to last ball didn't really drop. So, um, there was a lot, there was guys quicker than me, but every side had one of those bowlers back then. Um, this is in the 90s. I'm showing my age here, sorry. Um, but every side, like, I remember playing against Belfield, they had a guy called Dar McDonald who bowled like the wind. But, you know, he'd scare blokes. Um, you know, Yarra Valley had a bloke called Ian Cheston who was about five foot nine, but could bowl rapid. So every side had a fast bowler. Um, but as I said, they'd bowl fast for six, seven overs and then they'd be gone. Yeah. So, and, and every team had a man with a reputation to bowl fast as well. Sometimes the reputation was was almost more than the actual speed that they bowled. Well, they used to get you two wickets. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So you go down to, to Northcote, you always, as you said, you started extremely well. When, when did you start to think, oh, I could be more than just Northcote? It was, it was someone, did someone give you that belief or was it just purely taking wickets that you start to think, hang on a sec, I might be more a cricketer than a footballer? I had a... Um we finished a game at Northcote where I think we played Frankston and Matthew Mott was playing and, and Johnny Scholes was there watching and I think Sean Graff was there watching and I took a bowl first change in one day game took six of 21 off 10 overs. 
And then Chuck came up to me after the game. He said, look, he said, I think you might be playing for Victoria next week. Right. So, okay. And he goes, look, you've just impressed a hell of a lot of people. Um, he said, so get ready to get suited up. Now, that never eventuated. Um, but they're going to play – I got picked to play in the second level and then I tore my side, which put me out for about six weeks. And then leading into finals, we played Melbourne Uni. I had to get jabs through my rib cage into my nerve endings to stop the pain. Um, so played that game, jabbed up. We lost. Lost or got washed out? I think we got washed out in the end on the Sunday. So I never really, I never really um, looked too far ahead. I just, I just wanted to enjoy and see how far I could go. Um, and even the conversations we had with Darren Berry and David Saker. Well, they said, you know, they're saying, like, you got something that we don't have, pace, you know, we need in Victoria. Because um, they had Brad Williams at the time, but I, I think he was quite injury prone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just sort of went along with the ride and said, yeah, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I didn't really, I didn't really get too caught up in all the commotion, really. Can you remember your first game? Can you remember getting the, the call or the, the conversation about, yep, you're in, this is, this is about to happen? Yeah, Sean Graff rang me. Um, I think I was at work and he said I just got picked in the one-day game, the old ING at, uh, against New South Wales and uh, up at North Sydney. And I remember we went up there, we trained. I roomed with David Saker that night. And then um, the next, oh, well, I wasn't too nervous or anything like that, but I bowled first change and I, bowled, I think I bowled seven overs for the game, got one for... 40 or something like that, I can't remember, but I got Brad Haddon out. Tough caught, initiation, North Sydney yeah. and against New South Wales. Yeah, and I got Brad Haddon out, caught third man by Graham Vimpani. Right. North Sydney, that was my first wicket. So I only bowled seven overs and then we chased down 294, I think it was. And then what about Red Bull cricket? Did that come quickly after that or? I got dropped for the next game and I thought, oh, well, I've played one game, that's all right. And then... Um, I played a one-day game against WA at MCG and bowled quite sharp and then we played South Australian Shield game, so I got picked in that. And I remember I was sitting at home and Graffy ran me again and said, Miggy, I said, Graffy, and he goes, just want to let you know you've been selected in the next Shield game. I said, okay, thanks. And then um, obviously the game, we batted first and I remember going at the bat. I was all right, but then going at the back all of a sudden I just got all these nerves come over me. Uh, Mark Harrity was bowling. He was quite a fast mm-hmm. left-arm bowler. And I remember the first bully bowled me. I, I, it just went past my nose and I didn't even see it. I thought, right, I said, this is going to be interesting. So I, I think I got seven or eight not out of some late, but I think my first wicket was Ben Johnson. I think I just bowled a – knocked him over with a big Yorker. And then um, got Buff out second innings, I think it was, which was – we knew if we got Lehman and blew it back then, we could win the game. So yeah, it was, that was my first red boy at the MCG. So this is we're talking about you know, just under 20 years ago, thereabouts, probably just on 20 years. Do you remember it like yesterday or is it hard to recall because you played so much cricket for not just Victoria but for Australia and um, and suburban cricket even after you finished playing first-class cricket? Does it the memories come back easily? Yeah, they do. I mean, they were good times. So, you know, in – you're doing something you love and you enjoy. I mean, I ended up loving the game of cricket. Um, once I got about 21, 22, I actually started loving the game of cricket more than football. Um, so the memories, when you've got good memories and you've played with such fantastic guys, 
which I was quite lucky through my career to play with some wonderful people. Um, you know, and I've had some wonderful coaches as well. So they're good memories, so they're pretty easy to remember, the good times. We didn't have too many bad times, Victoria. Well, I was going to say, you're part of such a successful era. Um, how competitive was it to keep your spot? Because you had so many other good, aggressive, fast bowlers, quite similar to you, but the way that you guys played, you played hard and you were such an integral member of that, that bowling group. Yeah, well, it was brutal. Tra- even training was brutal. I remember, you know, training, we, we, us as bowlers, we'd try and hurt the batsmen at training because um, we believed that if they could get through it, they could get through anything, but we need to practice what we wanted to do as well. So training was, as I said, quite brutal. I mean, there used to be a lot of bounces, a lot of talk. Um, you know, it was quite feisty at times and it was a bit a lot of niggle, but... I think that's what made us so good. I don't think opposition sides would see us going at each other and they'd be thinking, what the hell's going on here? So yeah, it's, it was to keep your spot, you had to perform every game. If you didn't perform, there was always someone waiting in the wings to take your spot. So how do you keep relationships respectful and close when you're out there trying to hurt the batsman and have a bit to say? Because it, it, that was... That was what Victoria was, were known as. They played hard against the opposition, but they'd play hard against themselves. Yeah. Um, I think after the game and after training stuff, like, like, I think we are quite good at leaving the baggage of training and then after a game or where it was after training, just sitting down and, you know, might be having a beer or a coffee or something like that and just your mates still. Um, you know, we're aware it's a competitive environment and we're there to win because if we can't win, we lose our contracts. So... I think we're quite good at separating the two, like at training and in games, like we'd be hard as. But then off the field, we're fine. We'll just sit down, have a beer and have a chat and have a laugh. Oh, I want to go back to that because I think cricket's kind of changed a bit um, when it comes to that sort of aggressive nature. But can you remember any battles with teammates in the nets? Were there batsmen that kind of got the better of you um, that, that, that used to – grind your gears a little bit or the ones that were, were your bunnies that you loved bowling to? I I, had, I wouldn't say bunnies, but I used to enjoy nicking them off was obviously Andrew McDonald and David Hussey um, because I suppose I used to angle in and nip the ball away and that's one ball they did, both didn't like. Um, but I, I used to have a few good battles with Hodgie and Herb. Um, Herb, I used to try and hit his hip all the time because his thigh pad wouldn't get quite get up towards his hip. So I used to target that all the time and every time I hit it, he'd just crack it and stuff like that. And Hodgie was um, – he was a class player and he knew if you're bowling well to him and you're getting him out in the nets, you're in a pretty good place. And for those two guys and even those four guys to say to them, that was unbelievable, that was so hard and you're in a good spot, you knew you were in a good place. So – who was the best one of the lot that you thought, not just bowling against but playing with and seeing what they did for Victoria? Was there, is there one that stands out? There's not one that stands out, but I, I, if I go back to that 03-04 winning shield side, we had Armberger, Elliott, Hodge, Moss, Hussey, Cameron White at six, uh, Ian Harvey, seven, Andrew McDonald, eight, Darren Berry, nine, Myself, 10, Alan Wise, 11. I mean, you got Ian Harvey batting at eight. Um, and that was a, a terrific side. It was – I'd put that side against anyone and we'd be very competitive. 
It's pretty scary when you think of Andrew McDonald. We ended up batting at six for Australia that, that, that he was batting at eight. Yeah. Um, the the aggressive way you played um, in your face of the opposition, it was the – you almost say now it was the old school way of, of playing. How much of that was bluff and how much of it was dead set serious? You want to hurt people? Um. When I say hurt people, like you don't want to hurt them to a way that you know they can't play again. But I suppose that was always in my nature. I was quite an aggressive person, and I think from a kid growing up, just with my brothers and and where I grew up in Heidelberg, it was you had to learn how to fend for yourself. And you know, sport in the Diamond Valley, you had to be aggressive. Um, otherwise, they saw it as a little bit of as a weak spot, I suppose. Um, well, I mean, ninety percent of it's bluff, but there's still that little ten percent. You know, guys just don't know. Okay, was well, he serious or is he not serious here? So, um, look, a lot of it is bluff, but you know, you, you got to have the, I suppose, the skills to back up what you're saying. So, I was lucky enough, to, obviously, you know, to bowl sharpish, and you know, if I wanted to put it up someone, I had the skills to do it. And you had your good mate uh, Shane Howard that was. Quite similar in a lot of ways. You, similar sort of people, similar sort of bowlers. It was a pretty dynamic combination there at one point through your career. Yeah, Stiggers was like, – he was unbelievable. I think if he didn't have so many injuries, he could have gone on and played a lot more for Australia as well. But the main guy there that was sort of forgetting back then was a bloke called Jared Denton. Yes. Um, you know, all three of us could bowl, you know, 140, 145 plus, but all three different types of bowlers. Uh, Dance was a beautiful outswing bowler. Stickers was, you know, got bounce of a length, and I was a skiddy bowler, could nip the ball both ways. So all three of us are different. And I remember talking opposition, they, they used to say, like, there's just no respite. Like, you see off you and Dance, and then you've got stickers to deal with. So it was quite, it was, it was a good uh, learning breeding ground for people like James Pattinson, Clint McKay, Dirk Nass came into it, obviously, as well. And I think. They saw the way we went about it and, and how we played the game, and I think that is, it's almost like monkey see, monkey do. They saw the way we went about it, and, and I think I mean Dirk's a different bowler, but he bowled fast. But I think James Pattinson learned a lot about how to play the game, like aggressively, but also respectfully as well. Yeah, so it's a, I was thinking what the right word to describe you as a bowler, but you bowling group, but even your team and intensity is the the word that kind of comes to mind, and relentlessness with your pursuit of that intensity. Um, apart from the bowlers you bowl with, I'm interested in the role of, say, Darren Berry behind the stumps, who also was aggressive by nature to help create that uncomfortable environment for a batsman when he went out into the middle. Can you sort of explain a little bit more about that that environment that you created? Yeah. I mean, Chuck was our captain back then. Um, he took over after Paul Rifle and well, uh, Chuck just wanted to win. That's all he wanted to do. And, and I think... That sort of rubbed off on all of us as well. We just wanted to go out and win every game. We just wanted to win. We didn't like losing. We just wanted to win everything we wanted to, we possibly could. And I think we're in a position that we would do anything within the rules to win a game of cricket. And if that meant we had to verbally get into someone because we knew they were a little bit fragile or, or we saw them in the social pages on the weekend, we'd just remind them about that. Like, you know, instead of playing cricket, you're in the social pages that – Adelaide, Morphville race course or something like that. Um, we'd remind them about it. But we were just relentless with everyone in opposition. I think I debuted in Victoria 99-2000 and then back then it was always Queensland were always the bullies. 
And I think it got to a point where we just had enough of getting bullied and then the new group sort of came through. Like David Hooks came in as coach and got um, Paul Roth retired, got rid of Colin Miller, got rid of Damien Fleming. So I just left like Alan Wise, myself, Matty Innes, Shane Harwood as the main bowlers. And I think the, the way he sort of changed our mindset to play the game and say, well, you got to believe you can win from any position because if you can't believe that, you can't win. Um, and uh, look, he's still one of my best coaches I had. Um, just the way he went about it, the way he changed your thought process. Um, and that year, obviously, when he died in January 04, we didn't lose a game. We didn't lose a shield game that year. And I think we only gave up two points once, I think, from memory. But Jimmy Maher in the final, he said, it's hard to beat a side when they've got so many people upstairs willing them to win. Obviously, Johnny Scholes and died that year as well and David Hook. So, and I, I think we, we just we were sick of being bullied by Queensland especially because they were a great side. And then I think we just sort of had enough and said, well, it's time to stand up for ourselves and give it back to them. I mean, so many questions just coming from that that answer. Um, so I'll, I'll separate them. I'll leave Hooksy to the side for the moment. But is cricket played like that now? Um. Or, and, and should it be played like that now? I think with with if it's within the rules, you know, and no one's been um, derogatory or anything like that, there, there's nothing wrong with trying to get inside someone's head. Um, I think it is played that way to a certain extent, but probably not. They probably don't go with all the microphones and the amount of scrutiny under these days with players with cameras around. I don't think they go to the extent that we may have gone to um, with some of our language we use, but... Now, I, I think it's still played hard and tough. It's just probably um, a bit more politically correct these days, I'd say. Yeah, I think it's a combination of that and also there's so much cricket played now where people are playing in different teams it almost feels from the outside that it's a bit nice because everyone knows each other so well. I think with a lot of franchise cricket, all the big bashes and flat, opposition players end up playing with each other a lot and they become mates. So you sort of forget about... Um, you know, so Mark Stickety, for example, you know, Queensland, you know, if I was playing against him while like I was bowling, I, I'd want to try and put it up him. But if you start playing franchise cricket together, you become mates. So that sort of aggression towards him sort of disappears a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Hooksy, I mean, whoever you talk to talks about the impact that he had because he was a left-field thinker, dynamic coach, Um just great to listen to talking his cricket stories. Do you, how often do you still think back to things that he may have taught you or told you that you still impart as a coach now or just in general day life? Um, yeah, I, I think about it quite often because the way he went about it and a lot of my coaching is like you've got to believe. And like, and as a coach, and this is one of his greatest strengths as a coach, he made you believe you are good enough. He made you believe that you were the best player out there. And I suppose as a coach, I mean, I try and take that. You've got to try and make the players believe that they're, they're the best players out there. Um, and then, and you've got to install on them. They've got to believe that they can do it because they don't believe they can do it. They're not going to do it. So I think for me, I think about that quite a lot, the way he actually made me believe that I was the best one out there. And he made me believe, like, if you can't get through this spell, we can't win the game. So he got you up for that. So you think about it quite often. I mean, and, but the combination of, of hooks and shipper was was genius. 
Yeah, it was really yin and yang. Where Shippy was always quite conservative, you know, and, and planned, and well, Hooksy was just, no, we're, we're, we're going to be aggressive. You got to, you got to be prepared to lose the game to win the game. You just wonder about him being a T Twenty coach now, and how how he would have potentially seen the game completely differently to everybody else. With well, his- it's interesting. I think his first or second year as coach, he came up with the idea of set plays. So we did pre-season one year when we had to write down our last two overs, we had to write down what ball we're going to bowl. And then everyone handed that piece of paper to Chuck. So, and we had signals. So if I was going to bowl a Yorker, it'd be, Chuck would be crossing his feet. So then the players knew they had to run to certain positions. So it worked quite well. And, and the first time we did the opposition, were going, what the hell's going on? So he was ahead of his time really in a, in a lot of ways because he came up with set plays where I think now there's a lot of set plays but you probably just don't see him yeah. as, um, as blatant. So he was ahead of his time really and, and it, it, my mind wonders, wonders how far he could have gone as a coach. Mm. I think at the start he sort of said, I'll have a crack at it, but I think by the second year he loved it. Mm. He loved coaching Victoria. He loved being around the boys again. And that's the thing you miss most as a player, that change room environment. After you have a good win, you sit down, you talk about it, you might have one or two beers, then you go back to the hotel. And that's the environment you love as a player when you've had a really hard-fought win. You've just really, really just nailed it. So consistently you're doing well. Personally, you're winning Shield titles for fun and then the Australian situation came about in, in white ball cricket. When did you feel that that was a possibility? Because it could be argued that it should have happened earlier than what it actually did. Yeah, I think I was a better red ball bowler than white ball. Um, I remember the Ashes might have been 05 over in England. Mm-hmm. I was playing for Durham and I remember I got caught up by John Buchanan. It might have been Trevor Holmes might have been sleeping back then because I just got my Australian contract, so they just want to talk to me about it. They said, look, we're over here, you're over here. Yes, they said, look, if we get an injury, we'd be calling you up to the test squad. I was like, okay. So I was thinking, ah, well, you know, they've got a 16-man test squad, they've got a few bowls, they'll be right. Um, Then obviously Glenn McGrath went down and I got a phone call saying, look, you're on, be on standby. If he doesn't, if he comes up no good, we're going to have to drag you in. So, but it didn't end up eventuating, but... I think I was a better red ball bowler than white ball bowler. Um, obviously, got picked in the white ball stuff for Australia and debuted in New Zealand. Um, but I mean, I, I suppose back then, players talk about these days. I mean, coaches talk about players not being adaptable to change conditions and change formats. I think back then you had to learn to be adaptable because you'd play a four day game, day off, white ball game, one day game. So you had to change and adapt quite quickly. Um, where I think these days, because it's played in a lot of us played in blocks, the players struggle to adapt a yes. lot, I think. Um, and then when we go to different countries, different conditions, because they don't have that skill set to adapt, I think they take a while to adapt to where they're playing as well. Yeah. So do you feel – not cheated, but do you feel do you, what if that you're that close to, to playing Test cricket for Australia, or did you are you comfortable with that? It just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, it's like what will be will be, and you know, 
I hate that saying, but like uh, there was some mighty fine bowlers in front of me. I mean, yeah, yeah, Glenn McGrath, Jason Gillespie, Brett Lee, um, Andy Bickle, Michael Kasperwich, Adam Dale, Stuart Clark, Nathan Bracken. That's just to name a few. So, you know, for me to actually get a game for Australia in that period where it's arguably one of the greatest sides ever played, I mean, I'm quite you know, happy to sit there and say, well, you know, I played in that era. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not many people can say they represented the country and, and played and stuff like that. So, yeah. what was it like playing for Australia? This pretty, is a bloke from Greensboro that was playing suburban cricket in his early to mid twenties. Yeah. Um, to all of a sudden playing for Australia as a as a thirty year old in one day cricket. Yeah, it was. It didn't hit me until I actually went out in the ground. I got told not before I was playing, and I was quite lucky because I had Hodgie there and I had um, Cameron White were there, so we were hanging out together and. Um, I was all right. I slept all right the night before. It wasn't until I walked out in the ground when we were bowling. Oh, not when we were bowling. And the national anthems came out and I actually I was standing next to modern Andrew Simons and Hodgie on the other side. And I looked up the scoreboard and I saw the Australia 11 and I saw my name on it, 19, Lewis 19. And that's sort of when it hit me. I thought, well, is this, is this happening? So it was quite surreal at the time. So... But, I mean, you know, your nerves go away pretty quick after you get your first wicket. I think it was what, Nathan Astor, I think it was, from okay, memory. First wicket. Yeah. Three wickets on debut. Uh, he played seven one days in the end. The the none for 113. Um, how do you feel about that looking back on it now? Does it bother you? Does it? Do you think about it? Do you get asked about it? Oh, I get asked, asked about, about it all the time. And does it bother me? Not really. Um, it was an extraordinary game of cricket to be part of. Yeah. I mean, if you actually go through it and you see someone like Jacques Cullis, who's probably arguably the greatest all-round of all time, bowled five overs and had none for 76. Um, if you double that, you know, I'm, my figures look all right. Um, but, look, it was an amazing game. And I, I remember my last two overs, I probably bowled ten perfect Yorkers. Well, in one over, I bowled six perfect Yorkers and still went for 16. Um, little chances here and there that could have been caught. Um, you know, uh, Herschel Gibbs got dropped on 108 off me. Um, you know, a lot of ch- half chances that could have been taken, but look, that was just an amazing game. And it's, when you look back on say I was a part of it. Um, you know, I got hit for, what, 111 or 13, I think it was. I can't remember. But you know, that's life. It's, everyone has a bad day at the office. Yeah. So we were talking at the start of the conversation about the your ability to bowl at the death, your Yorkers, and as I said, you were, you're famous for it here in Victoria. Um, so then my the natural question for me to ask you is with the proliferation of T20 cricket, you just missed that window. How good do you reckon would have been for you as an IPL bowler, a BBL bowler? Do you, do you think it would have been your thing or you were saying before you reckon you are a better red ball bowler than a white ball bowler? Oh, I think – if I was, if IPL was around back then, I, I, I'd back myself to get picked up by a franchise, and I'd back myself to be quite successful over there in India. Um, just missed the window. Does it bother me? Not really. No, don't really care to be honest. <laughs> um, look, I had a great time, and, and everyone can argue. Every era can argue, saying this, this, and this. But that's it, it, just the way the game sort of progressed, I suppose. Um, no, I've got no, I've got, I, I would have liked to play IPL, would have been great experience and, and stuff like that, but I didn't play, so it doesn't really worry me. 
So after you finished playing, you went back and played a couple of years at Coburg in, in Subbies. What well, I'm fascinated to know what that was like because uh, you were terrifying a lot of people at, at that level. You still had the hunger to, to play. You still had the will to win. Um, but also you were giving back um, to cricket by continuing on at playing. Yeah, I, I suppose when I finished, there was a couple of subsidies that called me and they wanted me to captain coach and I had no interest in captain coaching. All I wanted to do was just play and have fun. And Coburg was the only side that came to me and said, look, we just want you to play. Um, uh, so for me, and I had a connection there with a bloke called Stephen Mott who used to coach Northcote. So for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer. It was just up the road, obviously living in Ivanhoe, Coburg's just up the road. Um, so I went and played there and, and I had five years there and we won we were the last lot of in the championship final and I had a ball there. I've got some good friends out of that club. So, And for me it was about, you know, we had a lot of young kids coming through and I was trying to push some of those kids to go and play Premier Cricket and uh, two of them ended up going down Essendon, uh, Josh Califore, we sort of went down Maine, we played threes and another kid called Aaron Shelley who played a lot of ones at Essendon as well. Um so for me, that was sort of like a good feeding ground for Premier Cricket where uh, I think a lot of Premier sides could align themselves to a subby side and, and use that as a feeding club to each other. Mm. But, you know, that's too much politics for me involved. Still has no way you didn't play at Ivanhoe considering you lived in Ivanhoe, but that's a conversation for another day, a sad conversation for another day. I'm getting into coaching again. We started the conversation about your coaching and how would, how was it to be that you went back to Victoria to, to coach and you said you did it for a long time and that next generation, you know, you talked about some of the bowlers that you played with, but then to coach some Siddle, Pattinson, you know, Boland, um, Shane Warne was sort of around at times as well. But, I mean, that fast bowling battery in difficult conditions, whether it be at Junction or at the MCG, they still turned up and they still had a lot of your characteristics in, you, in them. Yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose that's something – you can't teach. You either have it or you don't. Yep. Um, it's like bowling fast. You're like, you know, you either bowl fast or you don't. Simple as that. Uh, I, I see a lot of people out there saying if you do these drills, you'll go from you know, 135 to 150. It's impossible. Um, anyway, we're getting off track there. But <laughs> um, I think going back into an environment where I knew some of the players, um, but I was there and, and I was quite clear to them. I said, I'm not here to reinvent the wheel. I'm here to help you and make you better. Um, and I just say to them, I said, like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I'm not going to tell you how to do things. I'm here to help. And any questions you got, that's all you need to do. Mm. So, and I think that worked well for that group because it was quite, when I went back to Victoria, you had Hastings, Mackay, Siddle, yeah, Pattinson, Hastings, yeah. Chris Tremaine came down, you had yep. a young Scotty Boland. So there was a lot of experience there. Um, but I suppose for me, for Sids and Pato and Hasto and, and Clint, I was just like an ear for them to talk to and, and just bounce ideas off because um, you know, we, we all don't have all the right answers. But I think together, as I used to say, I said, together as a group, we'll find the right answers. And I think sort of empowering them a little bit to take a little bit of ownership on the young guys sort of help their career a little bit as well. Mm. Um, Some when we were training, like it was brilliant to watch the conversations, Siddle, Pattinson were having with the young Scotty Bowen, to having with the Chris Tremaine, to having with, the, you know, back then might have been Jackson Cooper, some of like that as well, a young kid from Melbourne. So to watch those conversations go along and, and sort of 
for the kids to break down the barriers and get to know these guys was quite nice to watch. And mm. you know, I suppose from a coaching point of view, you're the catalyst behind that because a lot of the kids, I remember when I went to the Victorian side, I was, didn't want to ask too many questions because I thought oh, I don't want to bother them too much. But you have to break down that barrier. And I think as a coach, it's one of your main jobs to break down that barrier about even though he's a young kid, you can still go up and talk to a Peter Siddle or a Scotty Bolland now. Reverse swing, again, something you did very well. Is that is that something you can teach as well or is that a natural thing as well from a, whether it be a wrist position point of view or just an understanding of the way the ball you know, sits in your hand? I'm interested in that because you, you and, and Shane were particularly good at that. But, uh, you know, we talk about your Yorkers, but the reverse swing both ways. Yeah, I think that's something we practice a lot because we knew playing MCG – Quite an abrasive. We used to go up and down a fair bit, and obviously here at the junction, we knew it was quite a, a weapon for us. So, I think we we did practice it a lot. And I don't think, look, oh, look, I'm not sure. I don't think sides bowls especially practice it enough these days. Um, where the thing about reverse swing, sometimes the fuller you bowl, the easier it is to play. Mm. But if you're hitting sort of like that knee roll length, it's the hardest length to play because of the late shiftings of the ball, it might bounce, might go underground, we don't know. But I don't. I think so much emphasis is put on new ball bowling these days and middle overs bowling, I don't think they practice reverse bowling enough mm. because the bowlers have to learn how to do it. And the only way to learn is actually practice it. Um, I watch them when they do reverse now, they all bowl quite full and it looks quite easy for the batsman. Um Look, it's it's a skill you have to practice and you have to learn, you have to develop over time. And it probably took Stickers and I probably two or three years to learn how to do it properly, um, and that was just through trial and error, mm. really. And I think a lot of a lot of your skills are through trial and error, but as I said, not having the courage, not being afraid to make mistakes. The last question I've got for you is, and it's the one that I ask every player, is is what, what Victorian cricket means to you? As I said before, it's, you've got Victorian blood in your veins. But is there a, is there a way you can describe what, what Victorian cricket means to you? It's been such a big part of my life and to watch them have success brings a big smile on my face. I remember sitting in Chelmsford last year, watching him in the Shield final and sending messages to guys like, hey, if you can get a lead here, this, this and this, you're right in the game. You've got, you've got, you're in the game, you're in the game. WA, they'll, they'll choke, blah, blah, blah. But you, know, you want the guys to do well. You want the state to do well. You want them to win titles um, because that's all we play for back then is to win titles and – we knew if we're winning titles, a lot of people are sort of closet supporters of Victorian cricket. But when you win, everyone comes out and says how good we're the best state and you just want us to be the best. Do you take some of your Victorian philosophies to Essex still or is it more the McLewis philosophies? Um, I think I think your style develops and changes over time and, and, and I think it changes in the environment you're in. I think with such a young group, I've got to work with at Essex. Like my philosophy for those guys is just to go out and have fun and, and, and learn. But at the same time, you have to give them the freedom to actually learn themselves. Mm. Uh, I'm not a school teacher. I'm not their parent. Mm. I want them to go out and, and have the ability to problem solve out in the ground. Um, 
because if they're figuring out in the ground, like you're in a good position. Yeah. Uh, rather than wait two hours and, and, and two hours might be too long. If they've got the ability to uh, – and that's the conversation. I have the young kids over there. So, like, if you're in this situation, what could you have done differently? Mm. You know, and then that's learning. So next time they're in a situation, they're problem-solving out in the ground and they're figuring it out. So – and that's what you want as a coach. You want players to be self-sufficient. Mm. It's what makes cricket such a great sport. Correct. Because it's problem-solving, whether you're batting, bowling or fielding or captain. That's yeah, what... And we, we forget cricket's a skill-based sport. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a lot of other sports are skill-based, but I think this is nearly one of the hardest skill-based sports mm. to perfect and you'll never perfect it as yeah. a player or coach. Well, it's great that you've you've come and had a chat to us. I know that a lot of people, you know, you're their favourite player growing up but being Victorian supporters and it's because of the way you played. You, know, you wore your heart on your sleeve and you had this will, for, will to win that was so infectious on your teammates and whether it be as a player but I reckon as a coach as well. They like to do it the Mick Lewis way. So thank you for coming in and sharing some of your stories and your philosophies. It's great. Thanks, Wardy. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Mick Lewis, uh, our special guest this week. The Victorian team, they play Tassie at the MCG uh, next week in the Sheffield Shield. And as I said, we're going to do things a little bit differently next week. We'll do that next week on the Vic State Cricket Podcast. We'll catch you then.